If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Willerskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Jennifer McQueen. He's back, upright and retaining fluids. Here's Scott Thompson. It's, that, it's kind of personal, isn't it? What, 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 what? A boy's making comments about his old man's bodily functions. What is that about? Uh, and it's not the, really the first uh, step we wanted to take here. Uh, good afternoon. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML, and it's it's been one of those days. And let's uh, let's talk about that right away and get it off the top. Uh, a sad day here at CHML. Bill Kelly did his last show uh, for CHML today this morning, and uh, just you know, uh, uh, an incredible tribute to a man who is one of the true legends uh, that has worked in this place over the years. And a mentor, an inspiration, a leader to all of us that are here. Uh, I want to play a portion of Bill signing off earlier today, a few hours ago. It has been an honor and a privilege to have those conversations. Uh, Our platform at CHML is ending, but we are not going away. I'm not retiring. We are going to continue that dialogue. And until that day and after the work that we've done here, I thank you from the bottom of my heart for your support. And thank you for having a a great, great desire to find the truth. We'll see you next time. All right. And that's uh, how it ended earlier on today. Uh, Bill Kelly doing his last show here at uh, CHML. The rest of us soldier on and uh, continue to do what the greats such as Bill Kelly have taught us and keep those standards high and moving forward as uh, we do that. So our best to Bill. My goodness. um, I remember my wife... uh, who uh, who started in this business uh, doing cut-ins on Bill's uh, old show way back when. We were talking about that over the course of the weekend. So uh, lots of memories and uh, lots of kudos going out to Bill today. And uh, thank you for all that you have done for all of us. All right, lots going on as uh, we continue. And, and um, I don't know if you remember this or not, but it was 20 years ago today that the largest blackout happened in North America. Where were you when the lights went out? In the dark. And I remember because my wife and I were golfing. I think it was on a holiday or whatever. And just all of a sudden, something got kind of weird. Everything got kind of quiet. And uh, boom, we lost power. And nobody was really sure what had happened. And then it turns out it's the, you know, the biggest uh, blackout in North American history. I think some 50 million people uh, lost power over the one to two days. 4-11, August 14th, 2003, the system supervisor in the control room overseeing the Ontario Electrical Grid saw four alarms pop up on his computer screen. Then came 30,000 more. Can you imagine what that was like? You know, we all know what it's like when our computer crashes during something, some sort of important task. Just, you know, like I picture like the Homer Simpson, you know, sitting at the nuclear plant. And then all of a sudden something goes horribly wrong. And um, and you can imagine the hell. But um, nobody knew at that time that in Ohio there was a problem that caused 50 million people to lose power in the northeastern United States and Ontario, included the entire province east of Wawa, except for small pockets in the Niagara and Cornwall areas. It was the worst blackout in North American history. And... Uh, 
the, the person who was there said it was very comparable to being in a casino and somebody winning the jackpot and all the bells and alarms and whistles going off. So uh, we all remember that. Where were you 20 years ago today? Seem that long uh, that the lights went out uh, for 50 million of us uh, across North America. All right. Uh, other stories uh, that we're working on. Uh, 15, uh, 75% of Canadians showing signs of immunity to COVID-19 uh, because of the outbreaks we had with the Omicron variant and, and you know, the whole thing evolving. It, uh, we eventually are building up immunity to that, which is great to see. Ontario government uh, announcing today digging into its surplus fund for six, six, $766 million, uh, for affordable housing, for large-scale manufacturing, flood protection, policing. And on that note... Um, uh, the issues of the green belt keep coming up and keep coming up. <clears throat> and, you know, I was on holiday when all of this story broke uh, in regard to the investigation and the auditor general's report into the green belt, uh, what have you. And we all know the results of that and, and what it showed. But what amazes me to, n- to, to no end and what I still get incredibly furious about is we are talking more about a green belt than we are about building homes. And again, I'm all for protecting the green belt. Uh, and again, this is a discussion that's happening now when we're 20 years behind on our building. The last three liberal governments built nothing. And, and, and extreme, uh, extreme, uh, environmentalists who, uh, would pee on every, anybody who was trying to build neighborhoods, urban sprawl. Remember the commercials we ran here? Secret sprawler. Well, those secret sprawlers are building homes. And now we're behind the eight ball. And it amazes me that people are so concerned about a green belt, which we need to protect and which we need to have an ongoing discussion about, because this problem is going to exist today, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 45, 50 years down the road, because the province and the country is exploding. So, you know, as if don't dig into the green belt and, and, sh- and, and sweep this whole discussion under the rug and let's move on. And, and, and what? Downplay our housing crisis where nobody has built for the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years prior to the pandemic? Sit in front of somebody who's in a tent in our towns and cities across the country and tell them you're more interested in protecting a piece of the green belt and fighting politics than having a home for them. Tell the young couple who's done everything right, got an education, worked hard, have jobs and can't afford to buy a home because we haven't built for 20 years. The green belt is a great discussion, but the fact that we're having that instead of the people that are living in tents and housing, frankly, I find disgusting. And it's about time the silent majority spoke up and put the extremists where they belong, on the extremes, and then we can work towards solving a problem. But I find it, frankly, disgusting. We're spending more time talking about a green belt than we are the people living in our tents, in our parks. What the hell is happening here? 
Those discussions and more coming up. We've talked about this many times uh, in regard to scams that go on. And, and, and certainly during the pandemic, it seems that we're hearing more and more of that post-pandemic uh, anyway. And a St. Thomas resident fell for an employment scam and is out 200 grand. To find out more and to make us all more aware of this and what to look out for, let's bring in Samantha Wakefield, Corporate Communications Coordinator, St. Thomas Police Service, and with us now. Samantha, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, good afternoon. Thank you. So give us uh, what, what happened here, basically. What, how, did this, uh, how did this all come to, uh, to play? What, were, what was the turn of events here? Yeah, so St. Thomas Police were contacted by this victim over the weekend uh, who reported um, being a victim of what he now believes uh, is a scam. Um, you know, as all of us use social media, we're not blind as users of those platforms, of the pop-up ads. Um, you know, user-generated content is on the rise on any social media platform um, that we use. Uh, and this victim um, responded to an opportunity that he believed was legitimate. Um, uh, and it was to create additional pop-up ads on social media sites. Um, the scam involved uh, the victim, the applicant, uh, to submit and transfer $100,000 to be enrolled in this opportunity. Um, and through a few series of uh, training that was provided by this company, um, instructions were given for him, uh, the victim, to complete the tasks. Uh, he was notified that he didn't do it in time. Um, and was being fined an additional $100,000. So the investigation itself is still in its preliminary stages, uh, but a total of $200,000 a local resident is now out uh, due to this pop-up ad scam that we're seeing and investigating. And obviously, Samantha, the first reaction is, you know, why would someone give that amount of money over to something like this? But again, it just reinforces how uh, legitimate these things look and how they will kind of weave you into it. It's not like it's a one time hit thing. Yeah, a lot of these companies, these scammers look, read, sound, will have a website of legitimacy that people believe they believe that they vetted them that they've done their research and you know through the relationship that's been created uh although most of it is online um they gain the trust of the victim and this happens a lot are you surprised by how much it does happen i am surprised at how much it happens but also it's it's not that surprising either with the legitimacy that these companies uh, and these scammers uh, can can provide. Uh, you know, they can mask themselves to look like any legitimate website we use on a daily basis. Uh, this is just one of several scams where we've seen um, the victims to believe that they were either speaking with their grandchild, using their actual um, bank card in a legitimate oh. way. Several several different scams that that we try to share with our community, even just this year so far, um, the victim in any of these cases truly believed that they were doing, you know, business with a reputable company, a legitimate source. What sort of tips do you have for us, Samantha? Anything you can pass on? 
Yeah. So I do believe that uh, our community is, is getting better uh, at, you know, vetting companies, um, not believing what they hear, uh, not clicking the links. I think that everybody knows if you get a random text message or you get a random email, uh, you can look at the sender. And a lot of people will look at the sender now and see that it's a jumbled up email from a foreign source. Um, to not click the links that you get in a text message or in a email that says, you know, we've got your credit or we've got your deposit here, click. So I think that we've become more aware of how to protect ourselves there. Um, the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre also has a wonderful website that gives you current and ongoing scams that they're aware of and that they're currently investigating. I always uh, recommend, we as a police service, always recommend check with your financial institute, check with your local police service uh, to verify whether or not a company that you're doing business with or you want to do business with uh, where any sum of money is involved at all is legitimate. Samantha Wakefield with us, Corporate Communications Coordinator, St. Thomas Police Service. A resident fell for an employment scam out $200,000 and warning us to be aware. Samantha, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Take care. We certainly know the issues that we have been facing here with affordability and and inflation and interest rates and, and what have you. And obviously with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that has created uh, stress on the global economy. China, um, second largest economy, powerhouse, uh, also feeling the pinch. As the headline says in the Globe and Mail, China's economic misery threatens a global recovery in a post-COVID-19 uh, world. To talk more about all of this, Elliot Tepper with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University, and here now. Elliot, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, thank you. Same to you, Scott. Good to be back so, with you. So, Elliot, I remember uh, it wasn't that long ago, a couple of decades, a decade ago, China was the golden goose. Everybody wanted a piece of the action there. And then, of course, all hell broke loose, uh, you know, in a post-Hong Kong uh, world and such and, and everything that has transpired since. Uh, and then, of course, the global pandemic. Where is China's economy right now? Well, you're speaking to a political scientist, and that's always my perspective, not an economist right. view. China is in a bit of a bind right now, as we are all realizing. They have a situation where suddenly, suddenly, their economy, which has been booming, and we have to give them full uh, credit for this, they've lifted more people out of poverty in a shorter time than any, any time in the history of the world. But all of that now seems to have at least started to peak. In fact, there's a lot of discussion right now in the academic literature, Scott, that we have peaked China that what we see today in China, and it's ailing right now, is really the top it's going to be, that their population is about to decline dem demographic forces, and that their economic model isn't working. So what we have right now in terms of China is that they did start uh, hoping, they started to hope that after the extreme measures taken under the COVID lockdown were let up, the economy would have a huge burst. In fact, it didn't happen. What's happened instead is that the population, the Chinese are great savers, the individual parts of the pop, you know, the people of China are very great savers. They're sitting on their money. They're not buying things. That's slowing down the economy. The government, meanwhile, has undertaken a very broad and very clear statement that politics is going to count more than economics, that if it comes to regime stability, it's the party over everything. And they've curtailed 
curtailed some of their that golden goose uh, that you mentioned. They've curtailed their tech sectors. They don't want any rivals outside of the party in terms of power. So they've been reining in the engines of growth in China. And at the same time, the people are starting to, of China are starting to say, we don't see that kind of growth. We want to um, put our money under the mattress. And this is now causing a, a slowdown. They're talking about a stagflation. They're talking about no longer having a, a growth economy, but with low productivity. And uh, now rearing its head, they may go into a prolonged period of stagnation. And they are now facing a very major real estate bust. An overinflated real estate market is now seeming to uh, perhaps coming down with a crash. The biggest of the companies are crashing. So they are in a perilous state in terms of the kind of growth that they need to deliver. This is the political science <laughs> coming in. They need to keep delivering the goods, Scott, to have their share of the social contract fulfilled. You give up your freedoms. We provide the uh, economic growth and the mm. pride in our economic growth. But if they can't provide, and with youth unemployment now, at, they say 21%, but close observers are saying it could be almost close to half. 46% might be the real youth unemployment rate. That is social dynamite. So is this, uh, and I'm sure it'll be a combination of both, the wrong strategy with COVID-19 and locking everybody down for so long, or was it, or is it turning out to be their inability to get along with the West, and therefore the West is pulling back and not interested in doing the business they once did? Yes. Again, standing back and doing the political science take on it, China's rise is... Uh, is to be noted. They, as I said, did wonderful things in terms of providing for their population after the debacle of the Chairman Mao era. Basically, the, the party started to get out of the way and put uh, policies in place that allowed growth, and that did happen. But uh, now they are in a situation where the party is beginning to look like a stagnating factor, a, a, a hold on the economy, and that in turn may be underlining the underlying the. Um, the problems that we're seeing in front of us. So do they need to learn to get along with others or just batten down the hatches for what lies ahead? Because the, for, the latter seems like that's moving backwards for them. Yes, this is working against them for sure. The, China's rise under the previous uh, Communist Party leadership was, you know, peaceable rise. Um, hide your strength and bide your time. The truculent nature, the aggressive nature of Xi Jinping's assertion of his authority over the party, the party's authority over the state, and the state's authority in the entire neighborhood, planning to have, you know, being the number one country in the world and by 2049, they've got a plan to get there. All of that is raising the hackles. Instead of working with the rest of the world in a way that the rest of the world can get along with them. They are now alienating wider and wider swaths. There's a very critical meeting going on very soon now between Japan, South Korea, and the U.S. at Camp David. Uh, the bringing together of these very important states in the periphery of China is clearly a result of the nature of China's aggressive rise, the wolf warrior diplomacy, the we're big and you're not, and that's just the way it is. That kind of behavior, not just attitude, but behavior militarizing the South China Sea and taking over big swaths of it. All of that is now leading to a reaction. And China's paying an economic cost because 
uh, led by the U.S. right now, increasingly, the engines of that growth from external inputs, including foreign direct investment, and including, of course, the high-tech inputs they need in terms of advanced microchips, that's being squeezed off, and the economy is suffering as a result. So are you saying, Elliot, that the economy is no longer the priority it once was for China? That's correct. The, uh, the, it's still, of course, an absolute priority, but it's not as absolute as it was because, again, the nature of Xi Jinping's definition of what China should be means that he is going to emerge as the only voice, increasingly centralized. That's over the party, and the party is going to be over the state. And even economically powerful and important interests within the state have to be put down. And uh, we didn't see the leader of Alibaba for over a year, for example, Jack Ma. They will not permit alternative centers of power, even though it's essential to the growth of the economy. That undoubtedly is helping put a damper on China's continued uh, role and prominence and rise in the world. Will they have to confront this sooner or later, or is this their, their, this is set in stone for them? Well, it's set in stone from Kodin Xi Jinping because he's seeing to it that the people around him on the Politburo now, this last shakeup, their last uh, uh, move toward reformulating the this centers of power, the Politburo, he apparently put party loyalists uh, who put loyalty over competence in terms of surrounding him. So we're getting into a classic situation mm. of the emergence of a strong man who will not be getting the kind of information and behaving in the kind of fashion that will allow him to continue to have uh, a regime that can grow and respond to the population, to the needs of the state. Elliot Tepper with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University, the state of China, and my, how it has changed in the last decade. Elliot, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. And thank you. The deputy mayor of London, Ontario, is alleging that dozens of those living on the streets are being shipped to the city, many of them under the false pretense that they can get services there. In a letter to, in a letter to his city colleagues, Sean Lewis highlighted municipal data that shows 319 people arriving from outside the city in the first half of 2023 seeking homelessness support services have been sent back to communities where they have a natural support network. What does all that mean? Uh, Marshall Healy is with us, reporter with 980 CFPL in London and here now. Marshall, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you. Happy to join you. Uh, clearly, this is a flashpoint in your city as much as it is in any across this country. Where is this sitting right now? Uh, give us an update. Yeah, so uh, the letter has yet to come before uh, the council. That will be um, on Wednesday. But um, in speaking with the Deputy Mayor Lewis uh, last week, as I did, um, he really took issue with the 25% that were sent um, against their will or under false pretenses. And that, that's, I think, is, that's his biggest issue with this, that he really is, he's called it inhumane to send people to another city, um, you know, under false pretenses with false promises to basically, hey, if you go to London, you'll be able to get a shelter, be, you'll be able to get help when that's not true. Here in London, you know, they're doing a whole revamping of it, but they're still at full capacity. So he's really, uh, I think, upset with people basically being sent here with false promises and not being able to deliver on it. Who is sending people there and what are the reasons for it? Are they accurate? Well, he's not, uh, he hasn't really disclosed that. Not uh, he, The information he's got, uh, he's received, has been from uh, city data, but he doesn't really want to say if it's been other municipalities or if it's other organizations involved with helping with homeless uh, people or if it's actual individuals, other people sort of bankrolling this. Um, he doesn't think it's municipal. 
just because there is a general agreement among the big cities that it's just it's don't pass the buck. So the idea is that as organizations, and he's you know kind of floated the idea that if organizations or if individuals are discovered to have done this, that they should be uh, discredited or they should not receive public funding if that is the case. So they're they're really looking at um, at kind of hammering that home. And uh, London is luckily hosting um, the Association of Municipalities next weekend. So I think they're really going to work out a plan going forward to kind of uh, address that part of it. Are they looking to government for help from those that come in from outside? Yes, I think, yeah, the uh, government of Ontario has also been included as uh, sort of who would be dealing with this. Uh, Nothing from the federal level, but they are looking at the government of Ontario to uh, work on the policy and work on possible punishment uh, regarding that discrediting of licenses or that public funding to stop it. Um, that's kind of their plan at the moment. But, of course, council itself has to actually agree to even direct the mayor to do that. So they're still in the very early stages here. What's the homeless situation like in London? Uh, it, it is growing. It is growing, uh, I guess, I think, you know, by the month, by the day. Um, as I said, they're really kind of working to revamp how they deal with homelessness at the moment, but with um, homeless hubs. But in the meantime, it, it is growing uh, larger and larger. There is about considered about 1,000 acute homelessness, and those are people who are not only homeless, but also have um, what would be considered, you know, mental health issues or drug addiction, drug addictions that need special help. And then there's about another 1,000 who are not considered acute. So it's wide-ranging the spectrum of of homelessness right now in London and for what uh, specific care is needed for each individual. Uh, The Deputy Mayor of London speaking out against uh, many people being sent to that city under the false pretense of uh, more services than where they are. Uh, Marshall Healy with us, reporter with 980 CFPL in London. Marshall, thank you for the time. Be well. Good luck. Thank you. Happy to join you. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Uh, Forecasters anticipate this week's Consumer Price Index report to show inflation rising last month, uh, signaling a reversal in progress after a year of steady declines. Canada's annual inflation rate fell back to the country's target range in June for the first time since March of 2021. But economists expected the victory against high inflation to be short-lived after, as underlying prices, uh, pressures suggest it will take some time for inflation to return back to its uh, 2% target. We'll talk more about all of this and what the energy gasoline factor is in all of this. Dan McTagg with us, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, and with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Thanks for having me here today, Scott. So how is gas or energy going to contribute to increasing inflation? Well, it was the prime driver in inflation last year when we saw gasoline hit 215 a litre and, of course, uh, diesel hitting 230. Um, coming down from those prices, as we saw, as the uh, last year's ver- uh, values began to fall compared to this year's, we saw you know examples where, as we see today, gasoline, uh, or at least in the past couple of weeks, gasoline was 30, 40, 50 cents a liter less. Uh, and that, of course, uh, had a lot to do with why the uh, inflation rate dropped to 2.8% from where it was a year ago in the 6.5-7% range. So there's, a, there's a, a significant link between energy prices and inflation, obviously the cost of living, because it is, as everyone knows or should know, uh, it is a... Uh, uh, 
an input product uh, uh, that is found in pretty much everything that we consume or use. And uh, some people may not like that. They actually may say, well, I don't drive a vehicle, so it shouldn't affect me. It shouldn't be inflationary. But it, like it or not, in your food processing, it has everything to do with uh, transportation, uh, the processing of the products. And, of course, uh, a commodity like energy isn't just uh, a small thing from uh, an inflationary point of view. It's also important as far as trade. The less we trade or the value of which we, tr- we trade less of, by blocking, blocking pipelines or having them blocked, uh, also contributes to the weakness of the Canadian dollar, which in turn, because we price everything in U.S. dollars, means that uh, it affects our purchase power. So it's on a day like today, where the Canadian dollar is trading at 134.6 cents uh, to the U.S. dollar, uh, that additional 34 cents in, uh, in many ways contributes to much higher prices when Canadians buy whatever it is they want to buy. So why are energy prices now going up? Because they were stable for a while. Now we're hearing rumors they're heading up. Scott, there has been uh, a bit of a head fake going on in the markets. Uh, you have seen uh, governments dip into their strategic reserves to pump out more oil in order to cause the price to drop. Now, those reserves were never used for those reasons. Their purpose was to be used in emergency cases, you know, hurricanes, uh, uh, geopolitical tensions, uh, disruptions, you know, think back 30, 40, 50 years ago to OPEC and its move. Unfortunately, it's actually signaled to the market uh, that uh, there is no need for production of energy because, of course, prices have dropped. We're now seeing uh, examples of where, uh, you know, movements by green advocates uh, to stop the production of oil and natural gas is now contributing to a lessening of supply at a time in which global demand is shooting up. Yes, it's going up by at least 3% this year, and that's faster than the rate of inflation. And it means, of course, that uh, we're now starting to see reality hit the markets, uh, that uh, supply is not as strong as it should be with demand surging. The world's looking at a global shortfall on oil, for instance, of about 2 million barrels a day, and that's going to become even more acute as uh, OPEC and other nations decide to uh, cut back throttle back, as it were, on uh, on production. So that's why we're seeing an increase in energy prices. Of course, it doesn't help that a country like Canada, with the third largest provable reserves, refuses to get more of its products to global markets. That affects, as I mentioned earlier, the Canadian dollar, and at the same time, leaves the world uh, with very few options. Unless they want to you know, beggar thy neighbor and go to Iran uh, to get their product, uh, the reality is that uh, there are geopolitical uh, consequences for countries that uh, you know like to play the green game, but realize at the end of the day they still have to use fossil fuels to make their economies run. Uh, majority of Canadians, and like over ninety percent, are concerned about climate change and believe needs something needs to be done. Where the difference is is in how we get there, and that's a massive difference. We're hearing polls over the last couple of weeks. The majority of Canadians are now rethinking the strategy and whether this is actually working. Seeing themselves pay higher prices and 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 no real impact of that, and, and no no lowering of greenhouse gases and such. Yeah. Um, uh, is the tone changing? Are are people demanding more? results than just smoke and mirrors here? People can't afford uh, to have governments uh, find ever more creative ways to tax them in the belief those ta- those those taxes will somehow bring uh, our emissions contribution uh, lower. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth. And countries like Canada, which have a distinct advantage in producing energy, much cheaper and cleaner than other nations because of our abundance, are being frozen out not by other nations, but by our own resolve in this country not to sell our products. 
We have a prime minister of this country, and let me be very clear about this, who said, no, there is no business case for liquid natural gas, even though Canada has the sixth largest provable reserves uh, for natural gas, has the third largest for oil. We have killed 19, 18, 19 LNG projects. We've done everything we could to stand in their way in the belief that we could somehow wish these things away or find an alternative. The reality is that the world's asking Canada, what is your major malfunction? Why would you not want to sell this to us? And it's not, I'm not talking about you know, shady countries. I'm talking about our G7 partners, two of which came to Canada saying, you've got the stuff we need, can you please sell it? And we have a prime minister, a liberal party, supported by the Green and the NDP. It says, no, we're not going to do that. Look, the reality is very different, Scott. We have to fish or cut bait. And if Canadians want to believe that they can, uh, they're somehow the bad people in all of this, creating uh, uh, more energy that's creating more climate change, well, that's not proven in science. But if they believe that, they truly believe that, then accept the year-over-year increases of 10 to 15% for food, except an inflationary rate that is going through the roof that is sapping our ability to make ends meet, and get rid of the number one energy uh, sector, which is uh, doing more to create opportunities and jobs and, in fact, contribute to the environment, which that industry is doing. They're not fans of mine. I don't like them. They don't like me. But at the end of the day, anybody who thinks we can get rid of this industry or somehow say that Canada should be the only one acting as international Boy Scouts or drill guys and get rid of it, is kidding themselves, and what they're doing is undermining and shortcutting the future of Canada. Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, where we are with energy and how it contributes to inflation. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. What a pleasure. Thanks again, Scott. Take care. 900 CHML. It's Hamilton Today. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. So I'm on holidays for the last couple of weeks, visiting with friends and such. And, you know, when you get my age, which is around 60, um, you know, a lot of your friends are older, some are younger and whatever. And, and, and we started talking about retirement ages. And, you know, in the old days, it used to be retirement is 65. But now that's kind of changed. And we're asking, is there even a retirement age in Canada? Is is there any significance to this? Let's bring in Howard Levitt, senior partner, Levitt Chic Employment and Labor Lawyers Offices in Toronto and The Hammer and eight other provinces as well, and author Howard Levitt. Howard, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well. Thanks for having me. So um, is there or is there not a retirement age in Canada anymore? There's not and hasn't been for many, many years. So people can re- continue working as long as they wish. And if an employer says, Anything to suggest exiting them because of their age or they're disproportionately terminating older employees, they've got a bit of a bonanza, not only a good wrongful dismissal case, and also the older you are, the more severance you get, but also a human rights, <coughs> excuse me, a human rights claim for additional damages or punitive damages adding to the wrongful dismissal case. So how did it used to be, Howard? What happened at 65 before? What rights did you have, did you not have at that point? Well, you have no rights, really. At 65, there was mandatory retirement because the Human Rights Code defined age between 19 and 65, so you could discriminate over 65. No issue. So you talked about severance. Um, What happens once you get to that point? uh, If you're still, say, whatever age, over the old age of 65 and such, are you still entitled to all of that, as you were, if if you were like 40 or 50? I had a case recently where I, well, a couple of years now ago, where I acted for two people in their mid-80s, hmm. and they sued for wrongful dismissal, and they won, 
got a court judgment or they got 24 months pay each. And part of the reason was, given their age, it would be hard for them to find other work. And is it, how does an employer balance this, um, uh, especially when some may look at this as a loss of productivity? Others may, you know, say, no, I'm fine till I'm 90 uh, and, and can still be doing my job just as well as I used to be doing it. How do you balance that? Like you do with every other employee. Some employees are better, some employees are worse. And if somebody isn't doing a good job, then you performance manage them. On the other hand, if it's an age-related disability, the employee has to be accommodated if another job exists that the employee can be accommodated in. But understand, if you're working in an accommodated job for human rights reasons, you could be paid the, the rate for that job. So if someone can't do their old job very well, they could do a lesser job, and it's because of their age that they've got various physical disabilities, the employer can move them to the lesser-paying job and pay them the lesser wages. So once you turn 65, does an employer, should an employer, can an employer say to you, what are your plans? We'd like you to retire or can any of you, do you have that discussion? When I act for employees, I say to them, be careful and listen to any suggestion of the word retirement because the word retirement means age-related discharge and you'll get extra money if you can prove that was said to you. So no, the employer cannot say that. They can never use the word retirement with anybody. And if they start asking people their plans around age 65 or older, they're going to be accused by the court of human rights discrimination. Such so getting them to leave because of their age. And that's a direct violation of the human rights code, just like letting them go because they're black or they're gay or other grounds of human rights discrimination or they're pregnant. Obviously, uh, another issue in a post-pandemic world, people working from home, uh, in some cases, for since the beginning of the pandemic at this point. Uh, what do you have? What sort of rights do you have if you're continuing to do that or feeling pressured to come back? What What is the situation if you've been doing something for the period of time that, that some have? That's a very good question. I would have said up to a year ago and maybe a little even more recently than that, if an employer told you to go back to your job because it's opened up again, you have to go back to your job in the office, period. But the employers have now let people work past that point. So unless they've got some sort of an agreement with the employee, they can call them back when, at some given time in the future, which most employers would be careless to create those contracts, which they should have created. An employee at this point can say, I'm sorry, but the term was I was going to go home because offices were closed. Because the government required you to stay closed. That's not the law anymore. You've been allowed to stay open for two years, three years, and you never ordered me back to work. So that has now become a permanent part of my employment. And if you make me come back to work, that's a constructive dismissal. I think a court will be very receptive of that argument today. Um, in the old days, it was one size fits all. You either here or there. Is that more and more difficult to administer? I mean, are, are we realizing the, the new world is not the old one again? Well, it isn't. But wait till we hit a recession and all of a sudden employers will be making a whole bunch of new demands. And those employees who are off working from their homes are going to find themselves very dispensable mm. and more likely to be terminated. They'll have to be paid severance pay. Most people would rather keep their job than have some severance pay, especially in a recession. And here's another issue that I think about a lot, and everybody should. If you can work from home, then and you don't have to be in the office, then why doesn't the employer go with a good placement agent 
and find somebody in Bangladesh or the Philippines or Hmm. Brazil or anywhere in the world to find somebody as good as you who's happy to work from their home at 20% of your cost. Uh You don't have to hire a Canadian. And that's the real risk employees are facing when they make themselves dispensable by not working in the office and being out of sight and out of mind. Obviously, we've we've lived through a, a pandemic, Howard. Uh, how, where do you see this, say, two to five years from now? I think most people are going to be back in the office again. Yeah. That's what I predict because they're finding it, companies are finding it much more efficient and productive, and it's good for mentoring, it's good for teamwork, it's good for communications. And they're saying, some of them are still saying, oh, no, we like our people working from home. That's just a recruitment mechanism to keep people motivated. But again, when things start getting tough, they won't have to do that anymore. And the employers I talk to appreciate that employees are much more productive in the office, and that's what the stats are showing, too. Howard Levitt with us, senior partner, Levitt Sheik Employment and Labor Lawyers, offices in Hamilton and Toronto and across the country. Howard, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. It's my pleasure anytime. The battle between the green belt. And we've forgotten, as we're defending the green belt, we've forgotten about all the people living in tents or the young couples who've done everything right but still can't afford a home. Uh, it seems we're more interested in the green belt than we are in building homes. And now things have come home to roost. And if there is, and now we're, as the green belt is, you know, the government's nipping into the green belt. We're, well, there's, there's more than enough housing. We don't have to go into the green belt, which I've had experts on the show talking about for 20 or 40 years. We got more than enough land without having to go into the green belt. So if we've got all that land, where the hell is it? And why is there a housing shortage? And why are they not building homes on it? And why does it have to threaten? Why do we have to threaten use of the green belt in order to jerk this land uh, loose? And now all of a sudden, oh, yeah, there's lots of stuff in the pipeline. So say municipalities. Let's bring in Dr. Ian Lee, associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. And here now, Ian, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, doing very well. Thanks, Scott. So uh, now we're hearing, you know, there's lots of land outside the green belt before we even have to touch it. Well, if that is the case, how do we have a housing shortage? Um, this is a fascinating uh, file. I think it's going to be the dominating issue for the foreseeable future in our country, not just southern Ontario, all across Canada. I don't want to use the word microcosm because the GTA is so huge. It's a third of Canada, basically, both population and GDP. But um, it, it, it's a, it, it captures the issues facing all the major urban cities across Canada. That's the first point. The second point, I just want to put on the table some facts before we get into the, the weeds or the details. The Green Belt was established in 2005 by the McGuinty government, and the arguments given by the activists and all the people that support it was we have to stop urban sprawl. You and I have talked about this before. I have testified before City of Ottawa, uh, the uh, council, that, uh, the committee, excuse me, uh, both the uh, rural committee and the agri- the uh, sorry, the uh, development committee. And I've talked about it many, many times in the media because it drives me crazy. I debated the former chief planning officer of the GTA in Ottawa uh, about before pandemic, five, six years ago. And, and, this phrase, uh, urban sprawl, is a, a bogus phrase. It's been yeah. invented, manufactured by people who don't like growth. And, and what they're describing is what, how every city has grown for 2,000 years. Whether it's London or Paris, you go to the core of London around the Tower of London. Well, now the city of London is 30 million people. 
It goes for miles and miles and miles beyond the Tower of London, okay? They call that urban sprawl. I call that population growth. So why, you could say, so what? Who cares about whether you call it population growth or sprawl? Here's where I'm going, and this is the issue that's going to bedevil us and confront us until we have a serious, honest conversation in our country. Many, many people, especially liberals and progressives, bless them support and strongly support and have strongly supported, going back to the 1970s, strong, aggressive uh, uh, annual intake of immigration. So do I, by the way. I'm not some closet person saying no. But we have never, never addressed and come to terms, including the McGuinty government that said, yes, we support immigration. And by the way, we've got to protect all this land from building new houses for guess who? Those immigrants coming in. Now, of course, he didn't say that. But that was the subtext. That's the tacit conversation that we refuse to acknowledge. We want to support, and we do support, large numbers of immigration. We just increased it to a half a million a year. That's Every two years, we dump one new city of Ottawa into Canada. Ottawa is a million people, by the way. Not the national capital region, including the Quebec side. I'm just talking the city of Ottawa. A million people. And so every two years, we increase Canada by one city of Ottawa. Okay, that's good. But nobody will acknowledge or recognize that we need to build a large number of houses. And where are you going to build them? Well, where the immigrants want to go. Where is that? Where the jobs are? Where would that be? Well, that would be southern Ontario and the GTA. And so what I'm trying to say, and I'm going to use a crude phrase. It's acceptable for radio. It's not swearing, but it's still a crude phrase. We've got to stop sucking and blowing simultaneously. If we want more immigration, we're going to have to acknowledge we're going to have to build more housing on raw land, land that is, not, that is now not uh, where housing exists. We can call that farmland. We can call it agricultural land. We can call it nature land. We can call it whatever we want, but we're going to have to build a lot more housing year after year after year. Or alternatively... If we're saying, no, no, we just can't accept that. We don't want one more house built in southern Ontario on that two million acres that is the green belt. Okay, go to the prime minister, state on, go to the podium and say, look, we've got too many immigrants coming to this country. I don't believe that. Okay, but my point is we are not having an honest conversation. Mm-hmm. And so what the critics do is they try and change the channel to talking about those greedy developers, you know. Yeah. Well, of course developers yeah. make money building houses. What do you think they're going to do, lose money and go to business? That's why developers build houses, to make money. That's the nature of the business model. Uh, years ago when I was in the bank, I used to lend to real estate developers. And they build houses for a profit, not for a loss. If you build a loss, you make losses, you go to business. You go bankrupt and you lay all your workers off. Not a good thing. So what I'm trying to say is this is not about greedy developers. This is not about actually Premier Ford, and I'm not, I don't belong to any political party, and I don't donate to any political party. We've got to have a real serious conversation in this country. Are we, what are the trade-offs? Are we going to and continue with a half a million immigrants year after year after year and acknowledge that we're going to have to build a lot more houses in areas of each city where there are currently its raw, empty, rural land? Or are we going to dial back? And, and I'm not saying we shouldn't dial back. Um, um, a professor at McMaster, a very distinguished economist, uh, Michael Vale, has suggested we should scale it back somewhat. He didn't name the amount. I've heard people, other people say the 300,000 that we were bringing in only three or four years ago is a good number. Yeah, I'm not going to get into that. 
I don't have the right number mm. for you. I don't know if it's 300, 325, 350, but, you know, whether it's 500. But the point is, the more people we bring in, the more housing we have to build. And yeah. we've got to stop this. It, it, is, it is so dishonest that we can wall off huge amounts of land, 2 million hectares. And by the way, we're not going to build any more houses, but we're going to bring in one new Ottawa every 24 months into Canada, mm. and we're not going to build any houses or any housing on land where there is currently, which is currently rural or agricultural. Ian, i got to cut you off right there because we're right out of time. Uh, Dr. Ian Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, talking about the Greenbelt discussion, and it ain't over with this round. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. It was 4-11, August 14th, 20, uh, 2003. I was playing golf with my wife, and all of a sudden we just... Something just felt weird. It was just eerie. Everything kind of went quiet, uh, especially like on a golf course. You're in the middle of nowhere. Uh, the system supervisor in the control room overseeing Ontario's electrical grid saw four alarms pop up on his computer, uh, his computer screen, and then came 30,000 more. And, uh, and then the lights went out. Let's bring in Tom Adams, independent energy and environmental consultant. It was 20 years ago today that all happened. Tom, thanks for the time. Been a while. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, hope you're doing well. Great to chat. So uh, let's go back 20 years, uh, middle of the afternoon. What happened? Well, it, um, uh, initially, uh, you know, the, the uh, immediately after the lights went out, there was all kinds of crazy speculation as to what the cause was. But, yeah. uh, um, it, 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 you know, fairly soon after, there was an international inquiry. Canada and the U.S. got together. They put the experts on it. They did a really terrific report and they got to the bottom of it. So the story was that uh, a utility in uh, upstate Ohio, First Energy had a, a tree maintenance program that they were not diligent about. They allowed uh, trees to grow into uh, 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 underneath high voltage power lines. The lines sagged as they do in hot weather when there's heavy air conditioning loads. The uh, a big electrical current will cause lines to heat up and therefore lengthen and so they sag down they made they made contact with the trees uh so that that but that in and of itself is not the you know like it's a contributing factor but what happened next really turned out to be a key ingredient the control room uh at first energy that should have you know, been doing the kind of job of the equivalent of air traffic controllers, you know, keeping an eye on making mm -hmm. sure everything is safe. They didn't react in an appropriate fashion. Um, uh, that caused more power to surge around their system. More, tr more lines came into contact. That started to, to drop generating stations off the power grid. And, uh, and, and, and that event at first energy then, propagated through something they call a you know cascade failure it mm -hmm. passed on went through michigan up into ontario swirled across uh, the top of lake erie a big electrical surge hit new york state and uh down the eastern seaboard so in the end 55 million people at the maximum point um, were disconnected 
So what did we learn from this? What's different now? Um, well, there was a, a, a ton of things got changed afterwards. There were a lot of learnings, um, uh, and they, they kind of fall into various categories. But um, there were important regulatory reforms in the U.S. Um, as, uh, you know, the, in the circumstances of that event, the regulatory changes that they needed to make in the United States, they had already put been put in place in in uh, in Ontario. So that 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 was a fact an item on the change list that affected our neighbors. Um, there were technical changes. So one of the things that happened was um, uh, the there was a recognition that these these uh, um, so-called control areas, um, uh, like the air traffic controllers, they did not have good visibility into the situation on the grids of their neighbors. And that was identified as a, you know, a, a, a contributing factor. And, um, very quickly the technical people fixed that. And so now there's much higher level of uh, collaboration, peer review, visibility between the different control regions. So the, the, something called the, the, the um, Midwest IESO or Independent Electricity System Operator, they, um, uh, that communicates a lot better with the Ontario operator, with the New York operator. Um, uh, and, and various of these control regions have a lot more communication between each other. Um, another thing that happened that that's been really good has been that we, as a society, um, broadly speaking, got much more serious about um, uh, e emergency preparedness for mm -hmm. electrical emergencies. So things like sewage treatment plants, um, uh, communication facilities, hospitals, mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, sewage treatment plants, uh, uh, much better uh, um, uh, electrical uh, emergency preparedness, which would reduce the impact of future major events, which fortunately we haven't had in this part of the world. Uh, a couple of seconds left. Can it happen again? Uh, big technical systems are vulnerable. You know, they can they they can happen. But like I say, we we have better preparation um, uh, to you know to manage the events if they do occur. So you know, I mean, no guarantees, but um, our power system pretty reliable by international comparison. Tom Adams with us, independent energy and environmental consultant. 20 years ago today, the great North American blackout, over 50 million at one time without power. Tom, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Right on, Scott. Thank you. This headline says it all. Long way home. Blame for affordability crisis. Liberals look to pivot on housing. Is it too little, too late? What can they do at this point? And you know, I think like whether it's the economy or what have you, the, these are, are, are cyclical problems. This is something I believe that is going to be a problem for a long time. Let's bring in Daniel Perry, consultant, Summa Strategies. And here now, Daniel, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Same to you. Uh, liberals trying to pivot on housing. Uh, what does that mean? Is it too little, too late? Many are asking why now. 
Uh, I think they're seeing that a lot of Canadians are frustrated with the current housing market, whether that be not being able to enter it, whether it be just not being able to afford their rent. There's a big issue right now of the lack of supply, and I think Canadians are very frustrated by that. And the government's hearing Canadians loud and clear. Uh, supply is not going to come back quickly. This is going to be a long problem, is it not? It absolutely will be a long problem. Uh, I don't know about you. Even trying to get a new washing machine is a challenge, let alone trying hmm. to build a house. So I think with supply issues that we're facing because of the pandemic, um, I think that's really rippling throughout the housing sector because it's pretty hard just to swing a hammer these days uh, and be able to find the wood for it. Uh, we all know that there's supply challenges, there's interest rate challenges, but let's be honest, those just compound the real problem, and that is, for the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years, we have just not built enough. We have not kept up with the amount of uh, growth in our population. Are politicians now starting to realize that, that they can't play to the extremes and not build because it gets a councillor kicked out, whatever. Uh, Is the tone changing here? Because it it seems obvious the excuses are meaningless. We've just fallen behind. No, that's absolutely correct what happened. There's been a lot of not in my backyard or nimbyism going on through Canadian municipalities where people love the idea of more housing, but they do not want it in their backyard or with an eye shot of their current house. And the reality is Canada's growing. In order for us to meet those demands, you're going to be seeing some towers built down in your downtown cores. Your neighbor's house might be getting renovated and there might be more people living there. Um, and that's going to make a lot of people angry that are currently homeowners. But for Canadians who aren't, I think they're ready to see some changes. I think the ones that are even more angry are the ones who are against urban sprawl and use urban sprawl as if it's a bad word. Some will call it progress or where immigration gets to live. Um, Is that attitude changing? Because, again, it seems that we've shut the issue out as opposed to addressing it. For example, lots of debates around the Greenbelt, and I believe it should be there. But, again, the debate around the Greenbelt, this is going to get even hotter and heavier in the next 10, 20, 30 years because although we've taken this out of the housing conversation we haven't really added anything in because municipalities are sitting on that white belt land or whatever you want to call it it seems you know everybody's saying well no there's enough land to build well then where are the houses and why do we have a shortage no exactly like that in the green belt this comes out a very timely point in this conversation uh and doug fordland you may want to change topic and not talk about housing for a couple months they're in some pretty hot water there but you're right. People have to go somewhere. Um, the cities are overbuilt and you can't build up much higher. You're going to have to go outside the city a little bit. And that might mean doing some rezoning and changing some municipal plans. But I think that's where Canadians are going to have to go because you can't live in downtown Toronto anymore when the average house costs $1.15 million. You might have to look at the building and some of where those trees are. And that's very unfortunate, but it's the reality that we're living in. Uh, liberals look to pivot on housing. What more can they do? <laughs> uh, I think they're running out of moves. I think moving Sean yeah. Frazier into that role really indicates what the government's plan is. Not only is he the Minister of Housing, but also Infrastructure, which really goes hand in hand when it comes to building things. So I think they're looking to him as either he's going to be the fall guy or he's going to be their hero. But they're going to have to do a lot. They're going to have to really work with municipalities to change zoning and to really get shovels into the ground. Because right now, like you said, Scott, we just don't have enough houses.
Um, attitudes polls. We've seen a lot of them over the course of the summer in the summer barbecue circuit. One that I saw when I was on holiday, um, 70% of Canadians think liberals should find a new leader. What are your thoughts on that? Is that resonating? <laughs> uh, I think you, you talked to a lot of conservatives then on your holidays. Um, I, I think Justin Trudeau is showing his years as leader of the liberal party. Um, he's been in government for a while and it, it wears you down after a while. You can dodge scandals in the first couple of years, but after a while, your policy decisions catch up to yourself. And I think we're seeing that with him now is that he's getting a lot of baggage for decisions he's made and all of it's kind of coming to a head. Do I think they're going to scrap him before the next election? Absolutely not. Um, people may not like him, but he's done well in the past three elections and there's reason to believe he might do well in his fourth. Uh, is, where does that leave everybody else in the party who has leadership aspirations? Uh, probably nipping at his heels, suggesting that he may want to uh, exit stage left sooner than later. Uh, but the reality is, it's like any other party. They're going to have to wait their turn for him to lose. And he made that very clear the last cabinet retreat last year. He's not going anywhere. And I'm sure this cabinet retreat, he'll he'll say that again. And what does he need to do to win back the popularity that he once had? Uh, maybe get it back in his time machine. Um, I think it's really hard for him to be honest with you. People are getting tired of him. I think what he needs to do is get out of Ottawa more and actually hear what Canadians are actually worried about and try to find solutions for them. And that's the biggest thing is just talking to regular Canadians and coming up with pragmatic policy ideas. Uh, have they lost touch with kitchen table issues? Whenever there's an election campaign, whether it's federal, whatever, or, yeah. or uh, provincial, there's always sort of a top five list of, of the concerns of Canadians. It seems that, is he on the same page as the rest of Canada? Well, given the cost of living, Scott, I don't think many people can afford a kitchen table right now, let alone put food on it. So <laughs> uh, broadly speaking, yeah, I think he has lost touch a little bit. And that goes back to my original point of suggesting that he gets out to, and gets out of Ottawa more and talks to Canadians and actually listens to what they're saying, listen to their concerns and take some of that feedback back. Because there's a lot of things he's not doing right at the moment, but there are some stuff that he's doing right. And I think he needs to kind of go back to that grassroots listening to the average Canadian and, and wanting to fight for them instead of kind of just getting trapped in, in an Ottawa bubble or he's just standing up for, for politicians. As you mentioned earlier, Daniel, you don't think he's going to step away. He's committed to the next election. That being said, if he was to step down tomorrow for whatever reason and someone else uh, or they were to announce a new leadership, do you think the party would see a bump in popularity? I think so. Anytime you elect a new leader, there's always excitement around them. Uh, historically, you see a slight bump after getting a new leader, then things kind of balance out. But yeah, I think they would see a temporarily increase in support, but they have a long history since being elected in 2015 that they have to run and they have to answer for that. So I, I think changing the face changes some of the problems, but it's not a long term solution. Daniel Perry with us, consultant, Summa Strategies. Uh, the housing situation, is that does that have liberals pivoting on their response to it? Daniel, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Same to you. Take care. Scott Radley is with us, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, I hope you're doing well. I am. How was the vacation? It was very good. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, it was fun. It was, um, yeah, had, the kids were even there. They decided to show up. So, uh, yeah, the first week was uh, uh, lots of people there and, and lots of fun. So, uh, yeah, good time. Good time was had by all, That's as they say. Terrific. Yes, very good.
And, you know, I remember, because today, I don't know if you remember this, is the 20th anniversary of the big North American blackout. Mm. And I think I was on a holiday when that happened. Of course you were. I, I was golfing with my wife. Okay. And I was in, and it was odd because you're on a golf course. It's not like you notice when the lights go out, but it did get eerily, eerily quiet. And it's like, something seemed weird to you, honey. I mean, we're just out there batting a ball around. And then you realize eh, nothing's working here. And then the rest is history. Do you remember where you were? I do. Uh, and the reason I remember, because uh, honestly, Scott, I mean, I don't remember what I had for breakfast this morning. So most yep. of the time I don't. Um, the re the only reason I remember is if you recall, and maybe you've talked about this on your show already, this was not that long after nine 11. And when this yeah. happened, everybody thought that this was the next one. And in fact, yeah. the spectator put out a special edition. The spectator had put out two special editions for nine 11. They put it out the day of, we all raced into the newsroom and put out an afternoon edition. And there was a special edition, I think the next day as well in the afternoon, which was very unusual, but this one. When the, when the, the power went out, everybody thought this was attack number two. Yeah. And it turned out, thankfully that it wasn't, it was just crappy electrical grid, but, uh, but it does show you one thing though, Scott, in, in retrospect, as we're hearing plans from the federal government that we're going to get rid of all other forms of power yeah. and go fully electric in the next few years, yeah. Yeah. maybe yeah. somebody might want to send a VCR tape of 2003 <laughs> and go, okay, so what happens in the Yukon or in North Edmonton or in yeah. Regina in February, if this happens? I, you know, I, I've thought of that many times that, you know, putting all your eggs in one basket, you, you know, think of the saying that's exactly what we're doing. And many, many, many experts have said, that's not the solution. It's a combo of everything. I also remember that Ontario for a, a first few hours was blamed for this. Like we had something to do with it. Then eventually it was traced back to a, a station in Ohio somewhere where the people who were monitoring, it just didn't follow the pro, uh, the proper protocol and shut things down when they should have. And it just sort of ex uh, accelerated through the system. But you remember that, was, yep. uh, that, that, that who, who's, who's, who's to blame for this? Where'd it come from? Well, yeah. And, but let me go back for a second. Cause I don't want to leave the thing yet about the going with all the eggs in one basket as you describe it. Okay. If we do this and we're just talking about what happens if, and all of a sudden everything is powered by electrical, all of our heating, all of our everything, do you not think when everyone worried that this power outage might have been the second version of 9-11, do you not think that that makes us more susceptible that someone could tap into our computer controls of the power grid. I'm not trying yep. to be conspiracy theorist. You're always concerned about your country's defenses. We're concerned about our 5G network with Huawei and we're concerned about, would it, does it not make us entirely at risk that someone from a foreign country that wants to squeeze us now has just one thing to go after and we have no backup? And, you know, and we've had this discussion before about uh, ArcelorMittal de Fasco going electric. And we see, you know, the stacks of coal that's out there and been brought in every year and they burn it and do what they do and create the business and the products that they do. And they're going to go to electricity. Well, how do we have enough for that? And I remember asking them at that point, oh, yeah, you know, like when you flip the switch, will, will Hamilton not go brown? And no, 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 there's more than enough because, of course, there was a 14-inch, I believe, natural gas pipeline that's going to be built to transition them off of coal, which, again, we never have that part of the discussion. 
And it's not just that. We're going to all electric cars. So people are going to have to now be plugging their cars into the grid and drawing mm-hmm. off of that. And we're going to have all uh, heating that's going to have there'll be to- more. There'll be more power stations that are, they're going to be more small, portable, natural gas and nuclear uh, modular uh, substations. That's what's going to happen. As I say, my fear about this is partially, you know, we, with, under the Kathleen Wynne government, we saw what happened to our electrical bills. Well, we can only imagine when you now have to use electricity, what's going to happen to our electrical bills. But beyond that, if anything goes wrong with it and we've eliminated all the other abilities to, to do things for ourselves, that to me is... When you build a house or you build whatever, Scott, don't they always say, make sure you have two ways of escape. Right. If there's a fire in your house, you don't just want to have one door because if the fire's at that door, you want to be able to go out the back. You always have a backup plan. And it sounds like we're deciding we're not going to have a backup plan. We're going to go all in on this one and nothing will possibly go wrong. We don't build two exits in any houses because we don't build houses anymore either. Well, that too. that's another discussion. <laughs> that too. All <laughs> right. Uh, thank you, Scott, and have yourself a great show tonight. Uh, thanks. Welcome back. It's, it's, it's weird to get back to working evenings again. It's, uh, I was getting very comfortable in the afternoon <laughs> from three to six. Not so comfortable <laughs> I was coming after you. I don't mean well, that, but. Well, well, considering what's going on, you never know. So keep. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Scott. Back. Thank you so much. Scott Radley joining us. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. A lot of the time, these politicians seem like the kind of people, while they're tying themselves to a bulldozer, they seem like the kind of people who would tie themselves to a rocket if we were to expand an urban sprawl onto the moon.